Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, we speak to John Y, who is the creator behind the Asianometry YouTube channel and its accompanying newsletter. Asianometry is, in my mind at least, one of the best resources on the intricacies of the business, history, and engineering details that shape the semiconductor industry. I've been an avid follower of John's content for years now, so it's a real treat to get to have this conversation with him. We talked about the many compute trends driving recent progress in artificial intelligence and his speculations on the potential challenges and innovations we might see in the near future. We also talked about uh, an in-depth look at the semiconductor supply chain and how it is intertwined with geopolitics, with John sharing some of his personal insights from living in Taiwan. And lastly, we talked about the buzz around LK99 and superconductivity. In particular, if we were to discover such a material, what its real-world applications could be and some of its limitations. On that last topic, I'll flag that we recorded this interview back in early August when people were more optimistic that LK99 would replicate. Although to John's credit, I'll say that I think our conversation survives that. As John notes in the interview, his interest is much more in the nuts and bolts of how semiconductors work and the relevant players today. In contrast to some of our other recent guests, perhaps, he has thought much less explicitly about topics like artificial general intelligence and its implications. But I think his viewpoint here is a really enlightening and complimentary one. It sheds light on the complexities behind AI scaling trends, highlights the challenges that a policymaker might face in this realm, and anchors some of our past discussion to real-world hurdles. I think I was also left with a much better sense of how companies like TSMC or NVIDIA might likely perceive recent progress and what issues are most salient to them. So if you haven't already, I really strongly urge that you check out Asianometry's videos. But without further ado, here's the episode. Cool. So welcome to the show, uh, John. Um, maybe to kick things off, we often like to ask guests the question, uh, what's a problem that you're currently stuck on? I'm working right now on a question on like, what is LK99, that new superconductor, that room temperature superconductor? What does that mean for the semiconductor industry? Is this something that can be like actually used in semiconductors? Can it be fit in the interconnects? Can it be fit within the any part of the system? And I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm reading all this stuff and I'm like, this is, this is insane. And I, I, I felt like, I feel like I, I was walking on ice and I now fallen into a 300 or 77 K Kelvin chamber. It's freezing in here. <laughs> Excellent. I really hope this gets derailed and we get to just talk about superconductors for half an hour. <laughs> um, but let's ask some proper questions before that. So. Here's a, just a naive question to kick things off, right? So um, as far as I understand, in consumer hardware, so in my phone, in my laptop right now, there are chips, there's GPU in some of them, CPU. But I also understand that when it comes to the kinds of hardware used to train big AI models, they're very different and they're increasingly specialized. What makes that hardware special? How is it different? I think like all hardware is defined by their power requirements, what they need to do in terms of computation, what they need to do in terms of what they need to achieve for like the goal, right? So you mentioned smartphone and smartphone is one of the big categories in semiconductor, in the semiconductor industry. And they're special because they have these restraints that are required by power, right? They need to be power sipping. They need to be not only that, they don't need to be very small, they need to be be put in special packaging. They need to be, for example, they need to be stacked with their memory on top of them. There's a lot of things that needs to be done that's specialized by the manufacturer, the fab, in order to make sure that that chip is suitable for the eventual end use case, which is the, the phone. 
in a certain cases where you have these massive AI accelerators, they don't necessarily have those same restraints because you're putting them in a data center. They are they they are kind of safe in their own their own server nest, I would say. So then you're you would think of that as you know you're working on power. You're looking on speed. You're looking at the uh, parallelization, and that uh, so these sort of constraints guide how the 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 final chip will eventually look like. Mm -hmm. Got it. And to say that back, presumably there is less than typical of a constraint on power because you don't need to just rely on a single wall socket, for instance, like you would with a, a laptop or, or a battery. Um, less of a constraint on size because you just have a big building. And so on usual extent, you're doing the kind of work that can be parallelized. And so maybe that also changes the kind of chips you're using. Is that right? Right. Because a smartphone chip is not just a chip that does computation. It's these are generally called system on chips. So they do a whole bunch of things. So the iPhone that's sitting in my pocket or something like that, the chip that's inside that is not just doing a CPU, but that like it, like it's it doing image processing, it's doing AI prediction, it's doing all basically all the things that um, that a phone needs to do. And that's far more than just compute, right? There's like process, there's like analog components, there's uh, power saving and all that. And all that needs to get, they, they try to stuff as much of that into a single die because that's, you know, that's how you get the most kind of scale and whatnot. Mm. Yeah, I think that maybe leads in nicely to the next question I want to ask, which is that there seems to be a lot of attention around small nodes. Uh, so in particular, when we talk about companies like TSMC or ASML, there's a lot of emphasis of these companies being able to produce equipment or manufacture at like the very small end of like three nanometers versus five nanometers versus seven nanometers. Why is miniaturization like useful for making chips faster and more efficient? I think it's a lot tied to the idea that when you put more transistors, when you put more devices onto an integrated circuit, it performs better. And when you get to, you have situations in history where you have discrete component components of some prior system, right? And they are put together on a circuit board and it's kind of like maybe it's like a PC or desktop. Now you have this ability to scrunch it all into a single chip, right? And once you put that on a single die, and you not only have like the ability to just add more functionality, you then you kind of bring that into the lithography world, the mass production world of semiconductors, where once you can, the, that's the magic of it is that just, it's a printing press. It's a monstrosity printing press where you can print 100 chips in a single pass. So that's sort of part of the, part of the value of that miniaturization where these things are getting more powerful. You're putting more of this onto a single die and connecting them with super fast inter interconnects. And, um, you know, when you have a billion or 10 billion of a certain thing on a single die, I think magic starts to happen. Mm -hmm. When I read about, you know, the five nanometer process, or there's a new three nanometer chipset coming out, what does that three, five nanometer refer to? I think that's the, the nanometer part, I think, is that's part of like the, that's what's a popular conception. I don't think the hmm. fabs actually call it, the fabs don't call it that. Um, okay. I think Apple does it, which is terrible. But like, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a marketing term, right? So it used to mean something. Right? So pitches, it used to mean the, you know, the, 
the, the, the distances between certain transistors as a certain point up until a certain point in history where we made the industry made this fundamental change in how they built transistors and basically turned them on their side. And once that happened, you know, all the previous metrics no longer mattered because um, the way it, it was a change, not in how much minute, like how many more transistors are put on a single die, but an improvement in how those transistors actually worked. So once they made that change, the industry was like, oh, we still don't know how to convey the improve, like how how to convey to other people uh, that this is a better process, right? And that, you know, I think, uh, what was, it? I think it was either TSMC or Intel did the FinFET transition first, TSMC jumped later. And I think the, the estimation that TSMC did was just like, we're just going to, we're just going to continue decrementing the nanometer count. And I think back then it was like a micron. Was it a micron? No, it was nanometers by then. They did the micron. They used to, it was like 0.13 micron and stuff like that. And they switched to nanometer. And that was a huge tr trouble. And everyone was complaining about that. But now they're switching. They switched to nanometers. And um, now they, 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 the decrements, if you don't notice, is like at 70%, 70%, 70% to vaguely indicate the improvement of Moore's law, <laughs> but okay. but you know by now these chips are these chips are insane, right? These chips are there. You can no longer comprehend them in this in, with a single metric as they did before. So you might as well just hand wave it Make away. Make something up. Great. Yeah, I, I think you also have a video explaining the at least for TSMC there isn't just a single type of three nanometer fab anymore. That there's like lots of like sub classifications. Can you explain Correct. like what's going on there? So nowadays, when you're talking about these super leading edge fabs, when if you imagine it, a TSMC, any process node is a line. It's like a manufacturing line where you're producing chips of a certain class. And when you talk about TSMC's biggest customers like Apple, Nvidia, AMD, you're basically work, TSMC is basically working with the customer to spec out what this might look like. So they, in the end, you almost have a customization. So this coming, uh, this new iPhone chip for the iPhone, I guess it's the 15 now, the iPhone 15 chip is using a very specific process and um, it's basically customized for Apple. It's, um, and, and eventually after I think a year where they work out the kinks, what they'll do is that they'll eventually generalize that more to other customers though it's hard to think it's hard to it's i mean hard to think about like which customers will use these um use these super advanced nodes down the line because they're so expensive they're so different and they're so advanced um but that's another topic for another day yeah, well, maybe to try to segue into what I'm really interested in spending a, a good chunk of this conversation talking about is, mm. you know, using very high end and specialized chips for the purposes of uh, training and running very large scale AI systems. Yeah. So it's obviously been uh, a lot in the news with uh, ChatGPT and Anthropic and like what have you, the uh, large right. language models are, you know, seeming increasingly useful and that we can expect to see increasing orders of magnitude progress in their performances and in their capabilities. I'm curious from a hardware angle, like what it would take in order to uh, enable these 
orders of magnitudes uh, of progress, especially given that it seems scale has really been a driver um, in at least like the past like decade or so of, of enabling this progress. Hmm. I've been thinking about this for a while too, because like I, I think the, the the thing that I always notice is that the on one side there does seem to be a capacity shortfall, like they're just not delivering enough hardware, um, and that seems to have caught everyone by surprise. Now I, I do think TSMC is very very good at making more stuff if you pay them for it, so I think that'll be fine. But in terms of like advancing the capabilities of hardware you might be you might be thinking more about like issue uh, things with um interconnect speed packaging advanced packaging moving together making sure that we can process more data in a certain cycle and i think that's that's that is that's part hardware that's also part of software so I don't know. I mean, hardware, I mean, a lot of things, a lot of people, when people complain about hardware, they complain, they don't complain, like, they don't think that they need their hardware to be better, they just need it to be cheaper, right? And, and I think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a manufacturing problem, that's a hardware problem. And I don't know if I made any sense with that, but a lot of, that's a, it's an interesting question, like, what can we do other than just expand capacity that, to make the hardware more sufficient for what AI will be in the future? Do you think it would be possible to get the kinds of, let's say, two or three orders of magnitude improvement in just performance? You know, you're scaling up the amount of training compute you're throwing at some model by 100 or 1000x. Do you think it, it's possible to get that improvement just from making these manufacturing processes cheaper, scaling them up, and also increase, like turning up the fraction of chips that go to AI? Or do you think that would require some more innovation, like actually improving the chips themselves? I, 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 think, I think right now, HPC, high power compute at TSMC is like, what, 7% of, of revenue? Whoa. And it's yeah. like, that's far short of what Apple does. Like Apple does 20% of their revenue. All, all that, a lot of that's iPhone. So if you think about it in the sense that like, there's still so much that might be able to be done just simply TSMC just ramping up the capacity. So like, even in the context within the company itself, uh, the comp like, they should like, they're not that big. So before we talk, I think a lot of people are going to say before we talk about changing the hardware changing and that sort of thing, I think there's simply let that capacity run out like ramp up and catch up to demand. Just to make sure I understood what you were saying there. So you're saying essentially around 7% of TSMC's capacity or, or revenue currently comes from AI-like chips. Um, uh, NVIDIA. 20% comes NVIDIA. NVIDIA. NVIDIA itself. Yeah. Okay. And, but 20%, for example, comes from like iPhone chips. Um, so there's yeah. like, yeah. if you just yeah, look at like the percentages and, and think there's easily an order of magnitude you could get just by having TSMC refocus its supply. Uh, or like refocus who, who cust uh, which customer it serves, let alone needing another TSMC or letting TSMC right. itself like it's about grow. planning, right? So right now the situation is like we ship like they ship like a hundred million iPhones in a quarter, right? They all need chips. TSMC can match that capacity. They can bring that sort of capacity to the market. The question is, is like the the issue with what happened with H 
with this NVIDIA stuff and also all the chip shortage stuff in the, in the automobile industry a couple of years ago was that it, it hit unexpectedly. And you can't, it's not like an AWS server where you just ramp up more servers. Like it's, there are things being made. And, but when you give the time to, when you give the time to actually make those things, I think people will, people will stop talking about a GPU shortage, which I guess is what people are talking about right now in Silicon Valley. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and so just concretely, so we're talking about chips for AI. So TSMC mm. is making a lot of them, maybe most of them. Um, I guess the main media customer is NVIDIA making, I guess, GPUs. But then like, what are those chips actually doing that's relevant for AI? Is it training? Is it inference? Um, yeah, what are most of them doing? They'll probably be doing a lot of them with the <clears throat> doing inference, which is where, where you have the model and the model is basically, you put that into the server and the it's generating the result. Like if you have these large language models, you're generating that next token over and over again. And training is where you kind of create the create the model, but like inference is actually where you run it. And I think like for the most part, that's um, that's where a lot of the that's where a lot of these models will have their cost. Um, the training cost could be still very high, but inference will be absolutely massive, especially when you consider these AI products that cost a lot and also they're being ramped across hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people. Okay, so you expect that most of the demand for compute to be on the inference side, especially once the models really just scale and get like a huge customer base. Yeah, assuming we Got can it. find that, yeah. Right, right. Mm. So two words that often get used when we talk about compute, uh, processing and memory. Can you explain a little bit about what these like are relevant for when we're talking about chips and maybe also distinguishing yeah. uh, how important they are in the training phase of a model versus in the inference phase of a model? That's a good question. I think like a lot of times, actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people talk about what, um, like a lot of people talk about semiconductors and they're talking about what chips are. They talk about chips, but they don't talk about the type of chips. And for the eight, 1980s and the 70s, the most important chip in the world was memory chip. And those these memory chips basically store information, right? When you talk about like dynamic RAM, which like they, they take a bit and it uh, like a charge and it stores as a bit, then you just have millions and millions of billions of these kind of transist like transistors and capacitors just storing, bit, uh, storing charges. And so memory basically is the information. It stores the information, stores the models, stores the programs. And when it is needed, the processor, the logic chips, will pull the information out of the memory, do stuff with it. Maybe, maybe they'll multiply two together. Maybe they'll add one to the other. And they'll send it back to the memory for storage and additional processing down the line. So these are very two different chips, like a logic chip and a memory chip. It's very clear. It's very important to make clear that like these are very different types of chips. They're made with the same processes. They're made with the same equipment, but not the, the same type of equipment, but not the same equipment. There, there are very subtle differences between the two, but they're important and they're very large categories in the semiconductor industry. They have their own different market dynamics. And uh, I don't want to be like a super nerd about it, but like logic, and, yeah, logic and memory are very different, but you need both to run a computer. Yeah. I remember this um, detail in one of your videos where you mentioned that the energy cost for just accessing data 
off chip mm-hmm. and then pulling it in to do like floating point operations yep. is something like you know two hundred x more yep. costly than doing yep. those logic operations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then similarly, something like you know eighty percent of energy usage for Google's TPUs, tensor processing units. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is from these like electrical connections pulling in memory right, 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 rather right, than right, the, like right. just the logic. Right, so right. why does memory in that sense seem to be like a huge bottleneck, especially for these AI applications? Like, why can't you just add more memory? I think the toughest part is that uh, we can talk about superconductors now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, like the, the, the one of the biggest problems is that when you access memory, right, it needs to go off the chip. It needs to, uh, there is an exception, Like there's like static RAM, which just sits on the chip alongside the logic, the logic stuff. The problem with that is that SRAM is what it's called, has limitations because you're making it not like you're not using uh, you're not using memory processing, memory semiconductor manufacturing processes to make it. You're using logic memory processes and also their size constraints and whatnot. So uh, memory on chip, I mean, like when you move data on the chip, it's always faster because you're using the fast, that's the shortest distances you're using maybe copper or certain interconnects to kind of types of interconnects to move this data really fast. And when you pull data anywhere, like when you pull data, even on the chip, it's going to consume power, right? Because the electrical signals are hitting resi- line resi- resistances. They're in they're the chart. You're losing power as it travels through because of fields generated. I can get on and on, but it's like, it's based, you're losing power every time you're sending signals through alongside the chip, right? And so that's so even within, if you imagine even this challenge on the chip, now imagine it off the chip. When you have other, like, so when you have sticks of memory stacked on top of the logic, you what you want to do is that, like what you realize is that the distances are even further, you have IO issues with pulling the memory out and then pulling it into the chip, logic parts of the chip, all of that is very complicated and um, it has costs when that doesn't sound like that much if I'm just saying it aloud to you. But if you think in the context of like, you need to run these massive AI models, which have like hundreds of millions of tokens and calculations that have to happen every second fast enough for the product to be viable, then it's Mm -hmm. a big issue. Mm -hmm. Got it. And I want to talk about superconductors. I think we should talk about it later. (laughs) <laughs> to avoid getting sucked into that rubber hole. Um, but yeah, just briefly, so that sounds like one major bottleneck for um, increasing the performance of yeah. chip specialized for AI. That bottleneck being just like having the kind of uh, the interconnect to pull in uh, memory to do processing on. But yeah, just briefly, are there any other bottlenecks that come to mind that seem especially important looking to the next few years, especially for AI? I don't. I don't see one really. I see. I see a lot of the. I see a lot of it's being memory. I think like if you're making memory issue, like if you have enough, the, the dream would be to have enough memory to load all of these into a single chip, right? But like that's simply not possible with the way these these models are going, and the memory memory is so important to AI. Almost you can even say a little bit more than actually the logic part. Like the computation doesn't seem to be the actually all that complicated. Um, I, but I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not like some sort of super scientist on that, but like, I would say that 
the, the important part is like what's stored in the model, in the memory. It needs to be done fast and need to be pulled out really fast. And there are restrictions on how fast that can possibly happen. And the whole race of it is to kind of make sure that ha like we don't have bottlenecks to prevent and cause serious latency in these systems so that they're not competitive with whatever is out there in the world. Yeah, got it. I just wouldn't mind zooming in on a couple of things you said there. One is you said the dream is in some sense to store the entire model on a chip. I'm curious yeah. what you meant by that. Well, it'd just be like, if, if it would be absolutely ridiculous, right? Like if you just, if you could somehow have this massive Titan, I mean, there, there's companies that try to do this, I suppose. Like, I think I would imagine like this dream would be like the whole thing is like you have this massive half of the wafer is like all memory that's like created some the specific memory style and it can store the whole model in the chip and then it can just be brought using traditional on-chip interconnects directly to the logic parts of the chip. Feels like you would get a very high performance benefit there. But then also you would also what you would end up with is some is a strange monstrosity that I feel is that's not economical. So yeah, that's why it. you got to scale that back down to using advanced packaging to kind of bring that uh, data over. I hope I'm making sense, right? It's the fastest way to access that data, right? And it's the fastest way to access that information, that, that stored program. So I've heard that in some ways, the actual logic operations that AI chips are doing in training or inference aren't that different or complicated. Yeah. I'm curious if you can explain a little bit more what people mean by that. Well, if you like, they, they did a paper on the T, on the Google TPU. And I think like, um, this, this was a while ago, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like I, when you looked at that TPU, most of it was just adding and accumulator, like multipliers and accumulators. So it was like a very simple operation. There's just a whole bunch of it. Right. So if you think about it, it almost kind of like a Bitcoin miner, like a Bitcoin miner is basically it does one thing and it's very repetitive, right? But like a TPU is kind of like that in a way. It's it's a very specialized chip that does that has circuits for a specific type of operation, which is to explain what these matrix multiplications are. It's like it's a lot of adding and then uh, multiply two numbers, add them together, multiply two numbers, add them together, and you just and you just do that millions, hundreds of millions of times um, each second. And so when you have a when you so if you think about what that is as a chip designer, then what do you, what kind of, you know, chip that you end up building to kind of meet that need. And, it's, you know, it's basically that sort of very specific thing. And that's different from something like a CPU or a GPU, because those, those are more generalized, right? They need to have different parts of their chip die dedicated to other operations, right? Like Intel would have certain operations for running a certain program or running a certain thing. And GPU would have like, like a gaming GPU would have certain uh, for for graphics processing or whatnot, whatever have you. So like chips are chips are built for the they have to strike that balance between the the project that they want to do and being generalized for other for other use cases right. that they're like my laptop. Like yeah. SOC needs to be a jack of all trades because I'm going to be like watching videos one day and then um, going on the web the next day and it just like right, needs right, to be able right. to do everything. Yeah, why you imagine the Apple M1 is fat so much fast? Because it's one because it's a node shrink, but also one because it's it's customized to do all the things OS 10 Mac OS needs to do.
Maybe just to uh, super simplify things down, because you mentioned the like matrix multiplications there. Am yeah. I right in like understanding that when we're talking about logic and processing, as you were saying, we're talking about like multiplying and adding, and when we're talking about memory, we're kind of like talking about remembering which matrices to like use in the first place. Yeah. What uh, are the weights? Are? Yeah. 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 What are the weights? Yeah. yeah. One thing I'm curious about as a bottleneck as well, and maybe this is just downstream from memory, but is energy consumption or energy like costs becoming a serious constraint? Um, yeah. I mentioned downstream because we talked about how much more energy intensive it is to access something off right. chip rather than right. on chip. But I'm curious, right. yeah, where you see, especially when we're thinking about data centers and cooling and just like running the chips like themselves. Um, this was clearly like a big point when it came to uh, like crypto mining and stuff. But I'm curious yeah. like where you see this um, heading for AI when we're talking about orders of magnitudes increase. It's tough, right? It's tough because it used to be for a long time when you ran the chip, when when chips got smaller, they they got the, the performance per power unit used was gotten better, right? Because there was essentially less distance between the transistors. And when they have less transistors, like when the interconnects are shorter, they use less power and or the less power is being spent. So the chip overall performed better. But that changed, right? That changed as the chips got so dense to a point where you're now having nanoscale effects that happen that consume energy, right? So if you, you know, like I said, like if you look at like a TPU or NVIDIA AI accelerator, like a large percentage of the power usage is from moving data around, just moving the data left, moving it right and all that. And there, I mean, right now I would say the situation with, with these chips are coming out is that um, right now the energy costs are not as significant as opposed to the benefits gained from you making these from optimizing for even more performance. So I don't know where it ends up. And I think like perhaps there could be changes made to the architecture. Maybe we could use a different type of material, um, but I've looked at it and I'm like, and I, I, find, I do find it a little bit challenging to kind of see ways to cut that power usage on a per chip basis. Do you have a sense of what fraction of costs currently come from energy as opposed to like buying the hardware upfront? What do you mean by that? Like, uh, what, what, like, do you mean like buying hardware yeah, so, as in like renting it? Yeah. So say that, um, I'm open AI and I want to like have people use my like chat GPT. Um, how much of the costs come from having to buy a bunch of like H100s, um, or renting H100s upfront running the data center versus literally the energy to like power those. Uh, and like, do you see that changing at all as, um, like AI scales? I would probably think the rent with with renting AI from renting AI power. I mean, you're probably going to get a lot more. Uh, you're probably paying a lot more to the cloud provider, really. And I think the your. I mean, if you look at how much AWS is making, I think they're making a pretty good amount. So I would say it's probably worth more to buy the thing up front, and stick it to a windmill or something. Uh, and I think that. I think that's probably would be the most sustainable situation down the line. Like stick it to a bunch of solar panels and just let it run. I'm probably simplifying too much, yeah. I'm wondering, like, even in that case, like, how much of the costs come from like the literal like chip or the literal hardware versus uh, like the energy it takes to to run that hardware. 
Um, at least like the reason why I'm asking here is it seems at least with crypto mining from a like very pop culture sense, it seemed, it seemed that like energy was like a really big part of the cost. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Enough that like people were willing to move to uh, Scandinavia or wherever where it's like cooler and like there's a hydro dam or something available. Um, I'm wondering if that like also applies to um, uh, like AI, like data centers or, or, or training. That's and when it does, or, I, when it does, I think like, but I think part of the backlash against Bitcoin man, mining and all those other ether, pre-ether situation was like, people were angry that it was being, that all this energy was being used to, to, to make digital numbers that we think has value. And um, I don't want to diss this crypto people out there. So like, I like it was the way that energy was be used for the certain purpose. I think that doesn't really change anything with like, it's it's still the same effects with Bitcoin mining with all those crypto stuff still are the same exists with AI. There's nothing with relating to AI, particular to make it any more use less energy, and in fact perhaps might even use more because like you're using a lot more of this hardware. Like there's not like how much like just like we're, there's not that much Bitcoin being Bitcoin miners being being produced, and not only that right you only have to think about um, if you just even want to talk about energy, right? It's not just using the chip. Think about how much it makes to make the chip, right? You're using these incredibly power intensive EUV, like as much of energy is being used, but and I'm about to drop a number and I don't know if it's right, but I think it's pretty much right. 30% of the total power usage of a microchip is in its operation. 70% is in wow. the production. Yeah. So we so TSMC is building a fab up in Taoyuan right now that's using the most advanced EUV um, and all that. And that's using enough power to run like Bulgaria or something right now by itself. TSMC, the company uses 7%, maybe even 8% now of all of Taiwan's energy, right? And that's, that's, that's all natural gas being shipped in, oil being shipped in, all of that being run these eight fabs or something. So if you think about it, when you talk about power being used on the chip side, on the operation side, it's not, that does not, I'm not even worried about that. I'm worried about how are we going to get enough power to make these chips? Yeah, that, that seems yeah. pretty relevant for questions around how easy or quick it would be to scale up, not just um, the fraction of existing output that's used for these AI applications, but actually just the total output. And if you're thinking about, you know, 2xing that or 10xing that, then yeah. you're beginning to use, you know, all of Taiwan's energy or something. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, like, you know, we it's it's staggering the amount of power these these things use. I think a single EUV machine uses the equivalent of this uses the equivalent of three Walmart supercenters. Um and Taiwan TSMC a TSMC fab might have, um, I think they have something like eighty of these machines. So like you, that adds up. It adds up, and that's not only that. You have clean room. You have etch. You have ion implantation. All the other equipment. Lithography is just one step in a very complicated supply chain. Uh, just quickly, we were asking about the costs to buy slash rent um, yep. the hardware as an AI yep. company. Yep. And I realized I actually don't have a good sense. So if I'm like, you know, OpenAI or another big lab, 
Yeah. Am I more likely to be just buying the chips and running them on my own server? Or am I more likely to be going to a cloud provider like AWS and getting them to handle everything for me? I would probably reckon that if you get to a certain size, you want to be buying the hardware yourself. Because otherwise you're paying, that's margin going to Jeff Bezos, Andy Jassy, than, uh, <laughs> than, than, than yourself, right? That's money being taken out of your pocket. I think I... I would definitely agree that like at a certain size, you want to be making your own stuff. You're making your own sets of systems. Yeah, got it. So I guess there's a difference in the company size, maybe kind of the smaller cap AI startups. They're just going to be renting the hardware because it's much more straightforward. Yep. Um, let's maybe do a quick crash course on like how we got to compute where we are today. So in particular, you mentioned uh, CPUs and GPUs, and then I think Finn also mentioned uh, TPUs. Uh, and we're talking here, right, about like kind of an evolution of um, like how chips and especially chips for AI have like evolved. Can you maybe very quickly talk about the relevance of having shifted from CPUs to GPUs and why this was uh, important in enabling the explosion of, of neural networks? So CPU, I think it's like, it's kind of, that's, a, that's a very interesting question you ask, right? Because you're talking about a situation where, so Intel used to dominate the CPU market, right? Intel dominated the CPU market for a very long time. They had a specific type of chip that really mattered to the, the technology trend in vogue during the 1980s through the 1990s and 2000s, early 2000s, I said. And that was probably, that was a CPU, right? PCs and CPUs. But once Intel no longer had that, once that sort of moved away from PCs, once PCs peaked, then it moved to a certain situation, right? So that's how kind of Intel found itself being, having kind of power moved away from it. Um, being left behind. And then from there, CPUs went to smartphone chips. And then as you're talking about now GPUs, right? So when you, so with GPUs, what NVIDIA did was to make this transition away from graphics, just graphics and generalizing to larger, more paralyzed um, workloads, like computation workloads. And that turned out to be, I, did, I mean, I don't think anyone had any an idea that was going to be it, but that was a the situation that fit neural networks pretty well. And um, that's once, I mean, I mean, neural networks, this, this whole GPU thing was very, is very recent in my opinion. I don't want to say there was a transition from CPU to GPU because right now, if you think about it, Intel's still far larger than NVIDIA and they still make more CPUs than NVIDIA's and it's kind of, it's 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 more interesting to think about that dynamic maybe down the line a couple of years, but right now it doesn't. It still seems CPUs are still very dominant in the industry, along with smartphone chips. But dominant in the sense of like compute being used across the world, as opposed to compute being used specifically for training AI models. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being making the stuff. Yeah. You mentioned parallelization um, mm -hmm. there. Can you briefly explain what you mean by that? And also, I guess, like how it is possible to run uh, tasks in parallel? How does that actually look like when we're talking about training or like running inference on something? Parallelization actually is a CPU thing. It started out in the CPU world. And it was a, it was a situation by Intel where they no longer was able to speed up the clock speed of their CPUs. So what they did is that they split the CPU kind of to create cores, right? And there's like a many, a CPU might have a couple cores, like 16, 20, even maybe 50 CPU cores, but a GPU 
they really take that core to a very much level level to a much larger level, like thousands of cores. And basically each core, it can be thought as like an independent unit working on a certain type of running a piece of software, taking in data, doing its own thing. And then eventually they, they, some, they, they bring the result together. Um, so parallelization is the kind of the concept of breaking you know, that single coherent task up into little bits that can be fed individually to each one of these cores and they all work on it together to put it all together at the end. And so you end up doing it much faster. And it was uh, when, when Intel announced that they were going to do this kind of parallelization thing, I don't exactly remember the timeline of it, but they, I know that NVIDIA was trying to do this sort of parallelization at the same time that Intel did. Sometime in the early 2000s, Intel was basically saying, like, we're no longer be able to speed up the clock speeds. We're doing this parallelization. And that cost, that was actually a pretty big issue for the, the kind of the Windows PC world, because now they had to rewrite their software to take advantage of more parallelization. Um, it's very complicated. This whole, this, the whole chip industry makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned uh, software there. So I, I'm wondering, yeah. does this tie in then with NVIDIA's like CUDA software as well? I know that this has gotten like a lot of uh, like press attention recently, um, yeah. especially in explaining like why NVIDIA is able to uh, stay like at the frontier or able to like lead the, the market here in this regard. It's pretty, pretty interesting if you think about it, because, you know, it's almost like as, you know, CUDA is, is a way to, to, to run this to run these par these AI programs and everything's written on top of it. In some ways, it's not necessarily a hardware performance advantage. It's not a advantage tied to, um, you know, NVIDIA's hardware is simply better. It's tied to an ecosystem. It's tied to adoption. It's almost like, you know, Windows, I would say, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a social advantage in a sense that kind of brings a lot of, that brings benefits that other competitors struggle to break into. I mean, I do hear a lot of people saying that eventually they'll they will break through it something, but I don't know. Feels really does feel like uh, feels like they Nvidia is okay for now. I guess when we're looking at the story of computing hardware, there's this shift towards parallelization first in CPUs, then GPUs, um, but then there's even more specialization in the direction of AI, right? As long as we're talking about AI, mm -hmm. so. On one hand, I have my you know gaming GPU that's hooked up to my um, desktop computer. On the other hand, I hear about, for instance, Google's TPU, which we've mentioned a couple of times. Curious what the differences are between those two things. Like a TPU, I would say it's 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 run it's built to run a specific you know workload. And I think when you think about GPUs, in some ways they're not all that different, right? The difference is sort of how their be how their circuits are being used. In the case of like a GPU that's being used for graphics and stuff like that, they're simply they've simply generalized the the type of the programs that would be run to generate a image to gen to turn to turn the, the gaming data into a like a, a a rendered image for the user. Well, so it's hard for me to make that sort of like a lot of the differences would be say would for me are tied to software and tied to what the compromises and designs were made to the circuit to run that software at the most optimal speed. So I noticed that all of the 
companies making these chips that we've mentioned yeah. are enormous and decades old. And like mm-hmm. they can just throw a lot of capital, therefore, at, at building some next generation of chips. Mm-hmm. This makes me think that it might be very difficult for um, new entrants to disrupt those companies. Mm-hmm. And that seems relevant for thinking, you know, who are going to be the major players in, in 10 years time, for instance. So curious how you think about how easy it is to disrupt these kind of existing NVIDIA, Google, Intel, TSMC, etc., existing players. That's a good question. I think like, I think it ties to what the demand in, in some ways you can argue that for these, it, it's almost easier. There's no easier path for there hasn't been an easier path for a startup to rise up and build a lot of, uh, to build an interesting niche in the industry, right? Because you have a situation where TSMC is open to taking on a customer, right? If you have like this really big company, if you're a startup and you raise like $200 million or something and you can, and you design a chip, you can get TSMC to use the same processes that they use to make an A100, right? To use, to make your chip. So in that sense, it's, 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 it's easier than ever. In some way, what the difficulty is, is finding the, finding that use case. And I think that requires some sort of discovery that, that's tied to, that, that's what your startup should be looking at. Your startup needs to be thinking of like what, uh, your hardware startup needs to be thinking of like, what is the special thing that we have that um, these other guys don't have and cannot have due to their existing concerns. Mm. Can you speak maybe a bit on like what's possibly like on the horizon here um, that like might be something like this? So for example, I know that you've mentioned um, silicon photonics and startups around that, like what's the relevance there and like how might that disrupt if it uh, like does end up um, showing a breakthrough? Silicon photonics is a tough one because I think the, it's, it's a very inter- it's an immature technology and it requires changes to silicon to be made. So the concept of it, the idea that was potentially disruptive is that you can use this to, to run neural networks and have substantially less loss because you're using light rather than electrical signals, right? Light travels at the speed of light. Electrical signals are restrained. They, they cannot travel as fast through the interconnect. They travel at a quarter of the speed of light. So what happens is then that if you were to somehow create uh, create a chip that uses that sends signals around using light uh, silicon chip, then you'd be able to bring a, a disruptively faster, better product conceptually. That's like the, the dream, right? You'd be able to bring that out into the market and basically everyone else will be like, oh my God, this is amazing. And they'll all adopt it, right? Um, the problem with that is that silicon is, is, does not, does not emit light. So, I mean, that's, that's the fundamental core problem, which then causes engineering challenges. And then like, you have to have compromises in some certain way, either you dope the silicon or you bring the light from off, like off chip, all of that adds cost. And then you have to, then it erodes the event, the potential disruptive advantage that a silicon photonics chip has as a, so I think if you think about it, like, uh, you have situations, I, d- I don't necessarily see advantages where the chip, where a technology can come up that in the space of AI perform 
10x better than what's already on the market. I would say that right now, when you have a chip like when TSMC is marching towards two nanom- N2, like two nanometer, and they're going to put something like 15 billion transistors on a certain chip, that's very, very, very difficult to, to kind of compete against. Then you need something, something insanely new, some sort of groundbreaking science. Um, is it possible that we will see like increasing specialization even within AI? So, for example, uh, I think towards the beginning of this interview, we've talked about the differences between inference and training, uh, like large AI models. I'm curious whether you could see there being, you know, say differences in how we trade chips off to like specialize in like one domain versus the other, such that those end up becoming two different like ecosystems or two different types of chips that companies would be buying. Whereas I currently understand that like with the H100, we're using it uh, for both. It's possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible. And I think it's, I think that, but then it's, that is tied to the use case, right? Do you have a use case that is worth go giving TSMC a billion dollars to make enough chips for you to do? Or even if you were to have a smaller chip, right? There are constraints on like their fixed costs that any chip startup must overcome before they can bring their chip to fruition. Um, and like, I think you need to find out in order to make, in order to overcome those fixed costs, you need to have your end use case. Um, um, so, so, so that's otherwise like you have no point to create an ASIC for that sort of inference special case that you have in mind. Yeah, this has been really interesting. Maybe to take uh, a bit of a kind of sharpish left turn, I want to talk uh, a bit about artificial general intelligence. So in particular, I'm curious because you've spent a bunch of time thinking about compute and scaling laws and supply chains, and I think uh, have like a very distinct perspective on all of this. Um, I'm just curious, how seriously do you take the premise that we would develop uh, AGI, so something that could learn to accomplish any intellectual task that human beings are able to perform, uh, like, say, within this century? I haven't really paid attention to it because I think it's like one of those things. I live out in Taiwan where they they kind of kind of it's away from Silicon Valley. We don't really feel the hype. And when you ask the ordinary people on the street about AGI, they're like, I don't care. And I think for in some opinion, I think like, if I comprehend the way I, I comprehend it, I, I don't think about I don't spend my time about AGI. So when I hear other people talking about AGI, I'm like, why? Like, what? What's, what's so interesting? What's so do you think like- that also? <laughs> do you think that applies to folks working at TSMC? Like, do you expect that in kind of leadership conversations, there are people like, you know, we should really take seriously this this premise that in you know. 20 years time, like things are going to get crazy. Demand is going to like 100x. No, no, they don't worry about that. They don't worry about that. No, (laughs) no. TSMC people, what they care about is getting the chip done this year, right? (laughs) Right. So like you can leave the AGI talk, AI, all that other stuff. You can leave that. They they leave that. I like, like myself, I leave that to big brain, galaxy brain people who like, you know, they, 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 they sit in rooms at, at, at some big conference and they talk about it. But like for, for TSMC and other people who focus on building these chips, they, they need to build the chips, right? Like, and they need to build these things. What TSMC is worried about is that, can we, can we ship N3? Can we ship N2? And can we get the capacity to do that? And I think they don't worry about, like in a recent earnings call, they said they don't know if AI 
they're, they don't know if their AI revenue is locked in, right? They said the same thing about Bitcoin too. So like when the Bitcoin miners were, bring, were buying all this hardware from them, they said on the call, like, we don't think this, we don't know if this is going to be a, a, a thing, capital T. So like they said the same thing about AI. And like, I think they're skeptical as am I. Like, I don't know if, I don't know what uh, AGI means. I don't know. I think it's a moving gold goalpost. I think it's, and I also think the hardware, uh, I think like, you know, in some cases it's hard to say what, where some of this AI stuff is going to go in the future. Yeah. Well, maybe one way to, uh, I think, frame this question differently that's like maybe less AGI centric is to just ask um, how you see uh, compute or like, you know, say the compute used in a training run evolving over like the next couple of decades where we've currently seen, you know, this like very uh, like exponential increase in like how large models have been able to go. You've mentioned previously that you actually see, you know, they're not being really any fundamental hardware obstacles and in many sense, a lot of like spare capacity even within TSMC yeah. to achieve, let's say the next order of magnitude increase. Yep. I'm curious if beyond that, you see it being, uh, you know, if the demand is there, um, it being easier to sustain like the next order of magnitude increase, say even two or three, like whether, you know, in this like scale is all you need hypothesis, yes, whether you see yes. any like fundamental roadblocks. Yes, there's no, there's no, the only thing the semiconductor industry wants is money. So if the money is there, TSMC, Samsung and Intel will move heaven and earth to make it happen for the next at least 10 to 20 years, right? But that's always the key issue. The, everyone, when Moore's law is not fundamentally limited right now by physics in some ways. It's 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 a it's partly an economics thing. Is there a end use case that can drive the next n two and one and or n point and one point seven? It's like what is the going to? I guess I think that's what the TSMC folks are worrying about. Like, is Apple going to keep funding another massive push to the next node? That's the big question everyone's asking. Do you think those folks are entertaining the possibility that, you know, maybe Apple and other companies like Apple just decide that M2 was plenty good? That, yeah, that's a big worry. That's a big worry. Like, that's a huge concern, I think. Like, and that money, like, if you think about it, like, there's like one big, uh, uh, there's one big capstone, kind of all the money that's flowing from there. It used to be Intel, right? Intel used to say, we, we decide, we have anointed this, right? And we will fund this all this with this money. And you have all these changes, these improvements in the semiconductor ecosystem to drive forward future changes. Transitions to copper interconnects, low-key dielectric materials, like all these new things. I've said a bunch of terms, doesn't matter, but like it just means that all these new things are happening. And they happen because there's a big customer at the end of the line saying, I'm willing to pay for this. So their worry, everyone's worry is that, is Apple going to someday say, yeah, like you said, I No I one needs anything better than this. Yeah, we good. It's way too good already. Yeah, yeah we good, yeah. we good, right? And then trying to tease this out, I guess, in the context uh, for AI, I guess like the question mm-hmm. would be, you know, do you really need a chat GPT like five or six when four or five are like maybe enough? And especially on yeah. the like, maybe more commercialization side, the question is less about, you know, whether AGI is, possible but whether we can like market it enough or like raise enough revenue enough to to get to that point because a lot of this is going to be like very expensive even if it is possible now that's a question that that makes a lot more sense yeah i think i think 
I think AI has a long way to go. And I think it does just on a basis that I'm looking at it right now, like it's very good now, but it could be better. And so if you think about it that way, that's there is a performance need for better hardware. Now that doesn't, so, but if we haven't started to see that kind of flow through to the rest of the ecosystem is, and why have we not seen NVIDIA step up to become one of the, the, the big co-customers next to Apple? We don't like, that's not happened. Right. So like, that's, that's one of those big concerns that I think that, that, that maybe says to me that right now, AI as a industry for hardware on the hardware side, I'm at all talking about the hardware side, AI does not seem to be as big as iPhone yet. So iPhone is still the king. It drives everything. And then next to that is GPUs, AI, stuff like that. Maybe that'll change. Maybe this next note, maybe for N2, we'll see Apple and TSMC or Apple and NVIDIA ramping up their newest AI accelerators next. But we don't know. Yeah. So one way those things could maybe wrap up quickly, and indeed the overall size of the semiconductor industry could grow quickly, is if there is some kind of feedback loop where um, some kind of generative AI becomes good at innovating on the hardware. Um, I'm curious whether that happens at all and whether that feels like a feedback loop to you. And I'm also curious whether you see that like becoming more of a thing in the next, let's say, five or 10 years. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I think it's like a lot of the digital circuits, these are billions of digital circuits now with each particular system. AI already in some way or form, computate computers already design a lot of that. And I think that's something that that's probably going to continue building down the future. There's no big issue. I mean, it's like, can you can you build that capacity? I mean, like, can you... Can you, can you, I, I just certainly see AI improving digital circuits down the line. Now there's, then you can talk about it deeper in the level where can you use it to improve lithography and stuff like that? Yeah, that a lot of that actually is already being done on the fab side too as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. Although I presume, you know, if, um, if you can double the performance of whatever kinds of computing you're using to improve your manufacturing process, and that gives you like a 1% or a 5% kind of, boost in how cheaply you're you're making these things that's not like a crazy explosive feedback loop that's just like a kind of a useful bonus but it's not it's not the main driver of of you know your output in the next few years yeah that's like that's like your okr hitting your your okr for the year right yeah that's, right it's like, great. that's like yeah good job like five dollar bonus <laughs> maybe one last angle i want to take on this question is are there any specific signals that you're you'd be looking out for as you're kind of like looking ahead that could change your mind in terms of like how quickly or how slow to expect AI progress to be? I think, I think we need to, I think it'd be very interesting if we see, like I said earlier, like Nvidia steps up next. So it used to be Apple and Huawei, right? These two companies led TSMC's newest leading edge node. And I think TSMC preferred it that way because they do want to have customer diversification. So in this case, if you're saying this way, they said so, since Huawei no longer is available, you have it's been Apple alone. And I think that's been a big concern on for a while now. I mean, it's been and I think that's something that if you see one of these AI companies step up publicly in a big way to be the exclusive launch customer for N3, N2, N1 point, whatever, then I think that's that's 
that'll be interesting. I would, I would definitely raise my eyebrow at that. So turning themes again, I'm curious to talk a bit about semiconductor supply chains. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe to kind of frame this, uh, a lot of your like most popular videos often take the form of why country X didn't achieve Y. Uh, and I think really points at the difficulties of actually being able to do technological transfers, even if governments are willing to spend a lot on this. And this seems to come up a lot in the semiconductor industry around mm. uh, lithography, around uh, you know Indian semiconductors, I think you also had a video on. Um, I'm curious if you're able to draw out any general lessons or a general theory as to why tech transfers are so hard, uh, especially in, in semiconductors. I think the hardest part about what makes the semiconductor industry hard for new entrants into the market is that uh, one, you need someone to teach you, and two, it's very competitive. And three, everyone's, it's already, it's very competitive. Everyone's moving, right? So two and three are very important. So like, uh, don't forget that every time, so right now Japan's trying to get back into leading edge semiconductor production. They're, they, they have this company they call Rapidus. They're trying to do two nanometer, but by the time two nanometer, their two nanometer ramps up in 2027, TSMC, Samsung, and Intel will already gotten there for at least one to two years. It's a leading, it's a trailing, it's basically old, right? And if it's old, that then like suddenly your revenue that you can potentially gain from this that rapidly declines the economic value of it because there's less demand, less demand for people to spit it up, to spend the hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a chip for that. Like it's very, it's suddenly, you know, then you've sunk a lot of cash into building capacity for something that never comes. And that's why a lot of these tech transfers fail because not necessarily because they didn't do it well enough, but because they couldn't get a customer. And so it's kind of like, in some ways it's, it's, it's trying to do tech transfer on hard mode because you decide that you're just, you're just going to, you're going to do, you're going to find the hardest thing you can possibly do. And you're going to decide to try that. Um, I, 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 I find that, interesting right and so like if indian if the if india wants to make semiconductors and they're starting at 28 nanometer in some ways yes i can argue you want to build your way up and you want to learn these things but you know you gotta also who's gonna buy these chips that you're that you're that's that that you're learning to make that probably will be pretty bad and so there's no the general theory is that i think it's a lot of these fail simply because the product's not good and you're not learning it fast enough and you need to learn it fast you need to work harder than everyone else and that gets in some ways that's 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 very difficult yeah i guess when someone's already making it cheaper than you before you learn how to make it really well then where are your incentives to get good at learning it yeah. um or at least yeah. how how do you get enough kind of runway like to how do that? you how do you catch up to someone who's running two times as fast as you it seems to matter as well right that like this industry appears to exhibit a lot of economies of scale, where just like being bigger gives you uh, like an innate advantage for exactly. like, doing a lot of capital expenditure. Yeah. TSMC's biggest value is its customers. The fact that you scale, you have this immense scale and they're paying you to learn how to make their product better. So I think that's incredibly valuable. Here's a question I maybe should have asked earlier, but when we're talking about the semiconductor um, supply chain, what are the big components in that chain? What are the kind of major stages from, from I guess, design to I bought a laptop? Oh, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> you have you, the, can, uh, you can dumb it down. Yeah. 
You have the chip IP where they, the person makes the design. You have the chip manufacturer, right? That's the fab. They're like the restaurant that turns your recipe into food. Then you and have- And this is TSMC. That would be TSMC, uh, Samsung, ST Micro, all these other companies. They in turn have their own supply chain, right? Uh, so we'll leave that offshoot to later. But then after the chip comes out of the fab, then it goes into packaging where you actually need to put it into the component. And then then goes to the end user, which could, which is generally not the consumer, but a supplier, supplier maker. So like I like Apple or HP or something like that, right? So, but then if you talk, to then like, then we talk about supply chain within the fab side. Packaging also has their own supply chain. Uh, like design has their own supply chain. So there's supply chains on top of supply chains on top of supply chains. It's ridiculous. It was naive of me to ask about the supply chain as if it's like a <laughs> one, two, three <laughs> process. Um, but that's a useful overview. And I guess it suggests the question of which chunks in this, I guess it's more like a kind of sprawling tree of dependencies, are most difficult to replicate. So EUV comes to mind as the example lots of people talk about, but are there any others? I think lithography has a really high value, but EUV itself is not a very, there's questions about whether it's economical. So like there's questions in of itself, whether like this thing is important, but lithography itself in general has a lot of value because it's the, it's the printing press. It's the way that we can turn where we're not writing the Bible, we're printing the Bible, right? And that's so important because that's the key to scale. That's the key to making a lot of chips. And once you make a lot of chips, you win, right? Get there first with the most, uh, with the most chips. So that's the, that's the key point in, in, in my opinion, the lithography point. That also, I mean, lithography is just, just because it's the biggest single point doesn't mean it's the most important point. It doesn't mean it's the majority of the point. It's something like 40 to 50% of the, of the equipment value within the system. You also have etch, you also have ion implantation, you have deposition, you have all these other things that work together, need to work in perfect harmony together at incredible speed in order to make work. Okay, got it. And then just quickly on that. So when we're thinking of lithography, people often mention ASML. Yep. Based in the Netherlands, as an example of a company which has more or less monopolized that part of the supply chain. And then similarly, TSM, you're raising your finger, so go for it. what am I getting they, wrong? SML okay. has a monopoly in EUV machines, but Canon and Nikon have strong share in DUV machines as well. So ASM, so I always need to make that clarification. ASML okay. does not That's have the, ASML does not have a monopoly in DUV machines. Yeah. Got it. Okay, go, go on. Yeah. EUV specifically, um, I should have said. And then TSMC as well is another example of a company which is, has an enormous share of um, their part of the chain, which is like actually making this, the, the chips. Yep. Especially on the advanced side, right? Like that, I'm, I'm asking, I guess, like as a question. Only on the advanced side. TSMC makes the most advanced chips and therefore captures the most value, but do not equate value with volume because there's far more companies out there making far more, far more chips low quality or low, not low quality, they're low, low value chips. Like these are the two cent chips that like go into my microphone or something. Got it. Thanks. That's also very useful. Um, yeah, I'm curious if there are other examples of um, kind of bottlenecks or 
you know, quasi-monopolies like this in other parts of the world, so other than Taiwan or the Netherlands? Uh, Japan has a lot of them. I think Japan makes a substantial portion of the the resins, the photoresists. So the photoresist is the thing that goes on top of the wafer. Um, they make a lot of the... Um, they make masks. Though they make the mask blanks. Um, they make a lot of the other stuff. I think you have some small European companies that help make the 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 writers for the mask. So this is so when you make the mask, which is the which is the um, the, the the template for making the chip design, you need to write that yourself, and that's handwritten, hand essentially handwritten. If you like to think of it that way. There's only one comp- there's only two or three companies in the world that do that. Like one of them in Ger- in Austria and the other ones in Japan. So like a lot of these a lot of these kind of these random these random suppliers and I think that's 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 by design. That's happened over the span of 20 30 years when the industry exploded to its current size and the biggest the the, the current biggest companies shrank their supply chains and basically snapped off all the competitors. So now we have the entire semiconductor supply chain industry is essentially like you have an A supplier, maybe an A minus supplier, and then a bunch of C suppliers or D suppliers. One reason to be interested um, in these monopolies is that from a public policy perspective, it seems that both the US and China are really interested in where there might be potential choke points when it comes to the very leading edge uh, types of chips. Um, we saw that like most recently with some of the legislation that the US passed. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, especially on China's side, whether there are any monopolies or like so-called choke points um, that they like might have. Um, Maybe to give like a further like prompt here, we have seen uh, recently um, them, I think, apply some export controls with regards to the supply of rare earth materials. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like a very open question, right? Of like whether that's like actually a choke point or uh, like whether you can find um, other suppliers there. I think rare earths is probably what they're seeing as one of their critical, most critical. And it's not just rare earths. They also have strong monopoly or not near monopolies in a lot of other minerals like transition metals, certain other whatever materials. And they do really well with, I think, basically any sort of refined, any, any rare, rare element that is not economical or environmentally healthy to kind of process, they, they do it. Um, and they are the ones that can do it the best. So, so not just, so think about lithium, think about all these other processes and these batteries things. So I think they're they're really good at that, and I think that's a manu- that's tied to their advantages in manufacturing. And I I mean that's is it a calling it a choke point? I think it's it's tough because um, it's in a choke in the broadest definition of the word. I would call it a choke point, yeah, because suddenly you have these dis- supply chains will be disruptive. But you would also argue you can also argue that these are commodities, right? These are commodities that only got to be so cheap because someone was subsidizing them. Uh, so um, we had the capacity to make these things before. And I would say there's an argument to be made that like maybe it's easier to do it again now. Um, so I do, but then you can also, you can argue the same thing about chips. So like, it's it's really tough to kind of imagine that, um, to, to compare these two, but they're clearly being, in my opinion, they're being clearly being used as, as economic weapons against one another, they're not necessarily outright, but they're 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 putting they're putting they're putting gates around the doors 
to make sure that when the time comes, they can shut the gates close. I'm curious to expand a bit on what you mentioned here with economic weaponization or like more broadly the geopolitics here. Yeah. Um, you live in Taiwan yourself, and I'm really curious, um, yeah, like what the public reaction has been to the US's CHIPS Act and export controls, which on the one hand, you know, seem to uh, target, you know, China and have like a bunch of like security concerns around it. But on the other hand, like a lot of the language is about reonshoring or trying to get TSMC to produce more of its advanced nodes in the US or even uh, help other companies such as Intel uh, reach like the leading edge. Like, yeah, like what is the like overall reaction there? And in particular, like what are what is the, the politics in Taiwan about around this? I think, um, I mean, it's 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 kind of interesting to look at it right now on a political basis. I think there's a lot, there's an acknowledgement that there are certain political lines in Taiwan Chinese relations that cannot be, cannot be crossed. And I think that there are, <clears throat> I think pe the, the people have an awareness of that. And they look nervously on situations where sometimes things happen that cause bad things to happen to everyone. And then, and the unthink, and suddenly people start thinking about the unthinkable. Um, I think, I don't think the people here want to have, but the, and the, and the, on the other hand, they also believe that TSMC is one of their most valuable assets, not just as a, not as a geopolitical chip, because I think that's definitely something we should, they see, we should throw, basically take out of the, take out of the equation. Like TSMC is not a geopolitical chip because, um, in any conflict, it's the first thing to get blown up. So like um, we would say, but they see it as a point of national pride. And when they see situations like re-onshoring, they basically say, think of it as like these, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's the talk in the United States about how TSMC is building its new fab in Arizona is concerning, right? It's concerning. It's it's a little interest. It's 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 an opportunity for Taiwanese people to basically say these Americans aren't working as hard, and it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of there's a lot of concerns. And I think it's there's a cultural differences between these two that is curious. But then they also yeah, there is a lot of talk right now because they're ramping up for the political election that you know, America is stealing TSMC. And for me, that's, um, I mean, it's, it's a relevant concern on, in Taiwan's side. And does that get mentioned in, for instance, like political debates, political discussions in the run up to the election? Uh, right now, I think the biggest talk will be, yeah, TSMC will be part of that, but TSMC doesn't like that. So they probably would say no. But the big thing is like what to do about China and how to, whether we need to be more soft to China or hard, like turned away from America a little bit. Like there's a there's talk about that, but I'm not I'm not like a political, I'm not I'm not like a political analyst on this. I would say that this is just my personal. This is from what I see on the television screens. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's what people are worried about right now, because they, they see these aggressions and i think uh it has it gets a lot of people worried 
One follow-up I have um, specifically around uh, FABs and the CHIPS Act is that the CHIPS Act seem to have a lot of uh, you know, business incentives around like subsidies or uh, tax breaks to help make it more attractive to build FABs in the yeah. US. Yeah. I'm curious to what extent Taiwan is able to... Um, like compete with that or like kind of do like a tip for tat with that i think specifically i've seen there being like a new tax break around like r d expenses yeah um that seemed to be like a pretty direct response yeah. um to the chips act yeah like yeah. from a government perspective like how is that uh feasible both in terms of like uh economic costs but also in terms of like the geopolitics or like the relations like with the us the number one thing that taiwan just government can do for tsmc or all the all the other con companies in the in the on the island is to basically make it easier for them to do business and that's the advantage that they have because tsmc doesn't really pay that much tax anyway so like the big thing that tsmc asks when they go to the government they're not asking for more tax breaks they ask can you get me more power can you get me more water can you help me clear this land out right that's the sort of stuff that tsmc finds a lot easier to do in taiwan as opposed to in america right in america they got to fight for talent they got to fight for this other stuff with intel those other guys but in Taiwan, TSMC has a lot more, uh, it's easier, they're more optimized to, to get that, right? So that's why they can, they can move so fast on this. And I think that's the sort of support that a government can provide that doesn't show up on a tax break. That's the sort of thing that I think matters more, too. Mm. Well, one last question um, I have is around uh, how some of this uh, geopolitics has an effect on like the pace of progress or like the pace of like the increase in semiconductors. So we've talked a lot about like just how complicated and international the supply chain is. And one like reaction would be that if, um, you know, governments are like politicizing or even weaponizing parts of this like supply chain that you would expect overall progress to slow down. Yeah. Uh, but then I guess to like counterweight this, you can also just see like the huge amounts of like money being thrown at this, uh, both from uh, like China and the US, as well as like other countries. Yeah. Do you expect this like recent politicization to on net slow down the progress in hardware or to increase it? Kind of tough. It's, it's one leads into the other, right? So if the government starts talking up this sort of politicization, then there's going to be less money in it, right? But I would say that right now, the way the system still works, my understanding of how the way the system still works is that if, if you just look at ChatGPT, right? AI was not a big thing before November 2022. Once ChatGPT came in, all the money flowed in. And once the money flowed in, stuff starts happening. And I think that so far, I think if there's money, then it will happen right now. But but but, you know, that money can vanish at any second. It's very it's very precarious. OK, can we talk about superconductors? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, here's an obvious question. What exactly is a superconductor beyond just a thing that can conduct extremely well? You know, it's that's kind of kind of it right so when uh, when they were kind of when they were were you know when they were doing these low temperature tests and trying to analyze kind of what would happen to conductivity so when an electrical current passes through an object a wire or anything right it's going to hit interference and it's going to hit that interference and it's going to cause that to slow down right but then when you have a situation where it's very cold very super low temperature at certain materials will be able to create 
ways for the electrons to basically phase through the phase through the lattice crystal of the atoms. So then you have essentially no resistance. They're just it's like as if they have the fast pass in the freeway. They just burn right through. And that's what's so cool about superconductors. Literally cool. Haha, uh-huh, get it. And then like they they just they like that's the holy grail in the sense that you know you see a lot of benefit on the power side because you're you're not losing power to resistance. You're not losing uh you can a lot of other things become more technically feasible um, and perhaps economically feasible. And I also think superconductivity, um, yeah, I think that's 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 the sort of that's the gist of it. The the, the fact Got that it. you Got have it. this mystical property that almost feels like a violation of the law of nature. Yeah, and to be clear, this isn't just you know it's a, a kind of arbitrary category of materials with especially low resistance. But rather, this is zero resistance. There's a kind of phase difference, and it's literally zero resistance. It's literally zero. Um, yeah, got it. No, that's and then, yeah. So my understanding is that there is there's a kind of frontier of pressure and temperature where, typically, uh, to make a superconductor from a given material, you'll need either an extremely low temperature. Or an extremely high pressure, or some combination of both. It's tough then, to is, say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then the his—I want to say that the history of, I guess, like pushing along this frontier is that you know we figured out a way to use the same pressure but a slightly higher temperature because we figured out some new material, and that frontier is just slowly creeping up towards ambient pressure and room temperature. Is that roughly no, the, the no. story? I don't think that's okay. The, I don't think. I, I think it's tough. I think it. I don't. I mean, we don't know whether pressure. I mean, there's, there seems to be the papers get more recent, and the more recent the papers get, the the more the less they they may they mean anything. And it's just yeah. like right now, it <laughs> seems like high pressure can help to create superconductivity, but there's a lot of other people saying it's not. So we don't know. But like right now, the the concept is like uh, the the relevant factors for superconductivity is like current density, magnetic field, and uh, temperature. So temperature is important, but it's not the only one. Right. So what they found out was like if you were to freeze something, but then you give it a high temperature, high magnetic field, which is exactly what happens when you start passing, you know, electricity current through a wire, it's going to deactivate itself. Right. And so that's those are the three things that really matter. And what they found over the, t- the years is that you can modify a material like a certain element. Right. If you create these crazy alloys and I really mean crazy, like these, these are insane alloys. That they 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 will create superconductivity. You can kind of like that's the way we're talking about. Like you would lower points on some point to maybe get more points on another. Got it. And then yeah, how long have people been trying to find new materials, new way to modify elements to to kind of push along those different um, measures? Yeah, how long has this been a something people have been interested in? It's like a hundred years, right? And that's the crazy thing about it. The thing is that no one knows why. Like no one knows, like no one, people don't have a really good understanding of why superconductivity works. And that's why it's been so hard to find new, new, new categories of it. And it's, I think there's some fascination with it. Yeah, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of geeking out about it, but it, it is weird. This stuff is weird. This is a safe space for geeking out. <laughs> and what? And what then is like the particular relevance of this like LK like 99? So you've mentioned, right, that there's been like a century or so of like exploration. Like what yeah. is particularly special about this or could be potentially special? Well, this special got, what, this, this, what these people say. are com- claiming is that this is this is it. 
Like this is the holy grail, right? Like there's a hundred years of of of, ex- of exploration, and like they have finally ended here, essentially, right? Like you have a room temperature superconductor that you just take it out, and it will superconduct uh, with probably some conditions, whatnot. But like it will superconduct at room temperature, and then everyone is basically dreaming, suddenly dreaming of floating hoverboards and maglev and infinite power and all that other stuff. The reality is the subtlety, it's much more subtle. And there's got there's gonna be a lot of industrial work that needs to be done. And almost like as if you there's has to be trade-offs made. So all of that will need to be considered. But like that's why everyone's gotten so excited. It's because superconductivity is not only a technical possibility, it's like it not only a technical goal, but it's also so partly wrapped up in a utopian dream. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about those subtleties a little bit? So suppose we do get um, an ambient pressure, room temperature, superconductor, maybe it's LK99, maybe it's something else. Yeah. Like what happens next? And what are the potential applications? It's tough. It's tough because like these are these are these are compromised materials, right? It used so if you think about like I, I just I'm finishing this video on interconnects, right? I was thinking, okay, we can throw a superconductor into an interconnect and suddenly we have no resistance. These chips, like a GPU, will no longer consume any power, right? Or consume 80% less power, right? But it's not, it's actually a lot more subtle than that, as it turned out, because like right now, the current interconnects in these machines are copper. And copper is not only great because it has low resistivity, like really low resistivity, but also because it's easy to work with. We understand how it works. And like, like you can do, you can kind of predict its behavior and you can build ways around it and you can deposit it very evenly. Um, that's not the case with like these crazy type two superconductors. You, a, a single element superconductor can never be used for interconnects in an IC. Inter, like, like you can't use copper, a superconducting copper, even if you were to freeze it. So then you need to start creating these super exotic materials. Uh, Why can't can't we use these single element superconductors? Because once you push a current through, once you start using it to carry a current, it generates magnetic field, and then the magnetic field turns essentially turns off its conductivity because it violates one of the three three goals: right, current density, magnetic field, and um, and temperature. So even if you have the temperature, if you exceed the boundaries in a in a in current or uh, magnetic field, the whole thing turns off. Yep. The whole thing collapses. Okay, makes no sense. You mentioned type two superconductors. Yeah. Is there a type one? Yeah, yeah. Type one. Type concept? one would be like lead. Type one would be simple alloys, single elements. Uh, mercury, right? Mercury is a type one superconductor because it's just mercury by itself. So yeah, I I've been yeah I've been immersed in this for the last week and a half. <laughs> And we'll, we'll also link to, I think, your videos, uh, both the one you've already done uh, on, on past semiconductors or the history of semiconductors, I should say, yeah. and then the ones uh, that like might still be in the pipeline. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of still keen to like nerd out about <laughs> superconductors. Yeah, yeah go, for it, um, go for it. I mean, maybe this is an open question. Like, is when you were doing the research for this, this video, did you have any kind of conceptions which you realized were wrong or did he learn any details which seem actually very relevant for it was, understanding how this pans out yeah it's so crazy when i when i i went into lk this lk99 thing thinking to myself it's it is 
it is the the holy grail. We have we have achieved eternal life. We have we have hoverboards now and all that. But then you learn more about how this works, and then you know, then you start reading about it. like man, man, this stuff is stuff ain't that great actually. <laughs> <laughs> like the key yeah. point is that a superconductor, in some ways, is like a scientific anomaly, right? And scientific anomalies are really hard to turn into commercial products. So, like, 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 I would say in the in nineteen eighty six, they discovered something called the one, two, three uh, superconductors. Right? They are called high temperature in the sense that they're like like their transition temperature, where they move into superconductivity, is higher than anything else seen before. That's good, right? But in the sense, but then and then you have the same dreams. People saying, "Oh, we now have infinite power. We have floating maglev." We're gonna have this is gonna change everything, but as it turned out, I mean, like they, they found out that this, like these one, two, three superconductors are simply scientific curiosities. You can't use them for anything, because like, um, well, you can make wires out of them eventually. It took them like years to do it, but like these are very strange materials. Like they're they they're 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 not. You can even think of them as more like waffles. They're like they're 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 cakes. They're, they're layer cakes of different materials. And the superconduct superconducting happens only in specific layers. So then you got to do all this crazy materials engineering to make it happen, and then you still need to do the freezing. So like it's the way people thought this would work out, the story would turn out, to, didn't become the case, right? People thought that they would be able, you would able to make these amazing wires, superconducting wires, to replace MRI machines, right? Because MRIs is the single exist the biggest commercial use for superconductors and it's only five billion dollars they iphone makes more in a month than or two months than all of the superconducting industry makes every year so like but then like people found out that that the these new superconductors from 1986 don't even can't even be made into wire that easily like they're like they're weird and that's why that's the only thing i can say like they're weird and like they it ends up causing all these issues, and in the end, people were just engineers were just like, you know what? We're just we're sticking with the old stuff. It's fifty years old, but we know how to use it, and that's like a very clear story of like how, you know, commercialization of scientific anomalies are very is very difficult, very difficult. Can you maybe speak about like so? Given all of these uh, like challenges, like what industries should still be paying attention uh, to this if it could work? So you mentioned some of the challenges in using this with uh, like semiconductors. I can also imagine, you know, uh, when it comes to decarbonizing the grid, there's like a lot of emphasis on like transmission lines, so being able to get energy from point A where it's generated to point B, and that mm. seems like potentially particularly relevant. Um, I know fusion, I think, has been like mentioned. You mentioned hoverboards uh, and like other things as well, but like what kind of sectors, if they can make it work, would you uh, expect uh, you know, to be more promising or, or which sectors should be paying attention right now? It'd be very interesting to see what these things will do to wires, right? I think it's just going to end up being wires. Like it's a power transmission. The problem is that this, these wires, if we, we need a flow, it depends on how LK99 eventually works. We don't know how this thing works, right? We don't know how any room temperature superconductor will eventually work. But there are fundamental restrictions on how this thing can eventually work. And what, it, what I found out was that, like, you can't, like, if the current density limit is not particularly high, then if the current you need to flow through this is large, you need to make this wire really thick, 
Like it's going to be a thick boy. So it's like, it's then you got materials engineering problems. Like how are you going to make enough LK99 to do a hundred meter wire? That's like a thick boy. So like, it's, it's a very difficult, it's very difficult. Like I don't, it might end up being yet another scientific anomaly that will be great and will win this guy a Nobel Prize, which is good because it seems like the best way to get a Nobel is to do superconductor stuff. But like, it's like we have no idea how to commercialize this stuff. A long way to go. Yeah, graphene just came to mind as maybe a kind of comparison, right? <laughs> um, like, we understand its properties quite well. It has all these applications, has all this promise for like batteries and stuff. We don't have graphene batteries at scale, um, presumably just because it's very hard to figure out how to how to produce it at scale yeah. and just commercialize it in yeah. all these different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another analogy, which I'm curious if you know anything about, is is semiconductors. So, like, not as shorthand for like you know computing hardware, but like actual semiconducting materials. Like, wow. you know. That's a thing that people had to discover and turned out to be really useful. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, was there a period where they were these kind of slightly mysterious um, materials where we didn't fully understand them and therefore couldn't commercialize them, and then gradually we did come to understand them? Like, what's the kind of story with with semiconductor? That's a very interesting question, and I think that's 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 actually something I think is really fascinating because, like, a lot of the semiconductor industry. Within the semiconductor industry, uh, there's two parts to this question, so I'll, I'll hit them both separately. I'll hit, first hit the point where when they first invent, like discovered these things, what semiconductors as we know it now eventually came into play because there actually was a prior existence of materials for this, like vacuum tubes, right? So what they did was that the what these these new materials were being like silicon and like germanium was being used is that they used it to replace an existing machine, like existing tool, which was the tube. Right. Um, so that's sort of like the thing that makes. So if you apply that to superconductors today, what is superconductors going to do now that don't or that already doesn't exist? Right. It's not going to create new magic. Right. What it needs to do is like, what is what is this thing going to do better than what already doesn't exist now? And that's the big question for a lot of people. And then separately, though, there's another part of your question where you say, you know, discovering you have. The funny thing that's so ironic is that you have situations in the semiconductor industry where some guy creates something, everyone's like, that's nice. And then it just sits for like 30 years and then they come back to it and they're like, we're gonna use this now. Happens all the time in the packaging industry. Like we used to have like chiplets is sexy now, but like chiplets have been around since the 1970s. Like they created this multi-chip module. They're like, everyone was like, that's nice. But then no one bought it, no one cared. And then like, or, and then like it, it failed. And then they revitalize it like a zombie. And then now it's the sexiest thing ever. So that's the sort of stuff that like happens all the time. Yeah. So in some ways, it's ironic. It happens all the time and it doesn't happen ever. Yeah, interesting. So maybe this is kind of delay. Like people have computers built with vacuum tubes and then someone thinks, hey, you remember that semiconducting materials stuff that we know about? Maybe we could like swap that out. And exactly. Get a bunch more transistors on the same. That's the magic of innovation. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Indeed. Briefly, before like wrapping up this interview, uh, I want to talk a bit about you know what is just like uh, being like an online content creator. So in particular, you produce like so many videos on like so many topics at like such a regular pace. Um, I'm just wondering if you can maybe walk us through your pipeline. Where do you get ideas? How do you learn about topics? Uh, like yeah, what's it like? 
Yeah, um, I kind of I kind of work. I'm very optimized now, so I I don't know when I first decided to do two videos a week. I think it was more like just that I a couple years ago I went to live with my grandma and I had I took a sabbatical from work, and basically I was like I told myself I was kind of a I wasn't that big at that time. I think I had something like a eight hundred a thousand subscribers, and I was like I'm just going to make videos one video a day, doesn't matter what. And I'm just, I made one video a day for 50 days, 60 days, two months. So basically I made, that's what I did. And it could be, it was anything. It was like literally anything. But at that time I really optimized the flow, which was that you have a list of, I have a list of topics. I have basically just text files. I write everything on text files, everything on Markdown. Every word, every video I do has a script and I script every part of the word because the more you script it, the less editing you have to do afterwards. I build the video and write the script at the same time. So collecting assets, making graphs, making charts, that all happens at the same time. So by the time the script is done, I set it aside, kind of give it some time to kind of mellow. And then <clears throat> I basically, when it's time to, base, to, to, to edit and record and create assets, that all happens in like the span of three hours. So, um, yeah, so that's that's basically the flow. Like I, and it's so tightly optimized that I I I don't even know if I can teach it to anyone. It's so crazy. Like I I I I have a job. So right right now I I go I do the videos. I write scripts in the morning. Go to work. Go home, and then I edit and record, and then I go to bed at hopefully eleven thirty to midnight. Um, then wake up again. And where do you get um, like information from? So a lot of your videos have this feeling of being, you know, both about history, but also like very textbook and like very technical. Yeah. Uh, do you literally like read textbooks on this stuff or do you I have do. any, any go-to resources? I do, I do. I live next to a library. So I would go down to the street, walk over to the library, open a real paper book and just, just read it and like do lots of uh, just, I think, you know, I hated textbooks when I was in college, but now I'm in, now I'm like, much older and I'm like reading textbooks again and I feel old, but like the older the textbook, I actually, I tend to find them better written. So like, it's kind of funny. So a lot of people say like, Hey John, like, yeah, you just said like you have a textbook feeling. That's exactly where it comes from textbooks. Okay. So if you're making, let's say you're, you're making this video on superconductors. Yeah. You need to do some research. I Presumably you do some kind of high level Google type research and yeah, then yeah, yeah. what next, where do you, where do you look to? How do you find the textbook to go and open up and read? Well, they have something called the Dewey Decimal System, where one day that like <laughs> <laughs> thanks you it's go useful. in and then you go. <laughs> like when I was a kid, I, I loved to read books, so I was always searching for books in libraries. So like I go, I'm very methodical. I go in and I I, I go walk from left to right like a scanner. I'm just scanning the books, and I pick first. I pick the biggest textbook. And then I read the first three chapters or five chapters, the introduction chapters. And then I'm like, okay, can I understand what this guy's saying? No, next textbook. And um, I'm very fortunate because like a lot of these textbooks, some of these textbooks are open as well. So like you can just read that digitally, then you can do a control F, that's very fortunate. But like for superconductors, I read I read 30, 30 papers that I downloaded that I just can pick up on Google, on Google Scholar and three textbooks and then i also have yeah so basically you just cram that in 
luckily it was a weekend. So I basically had the, the weekend to myself and it was just cramming through the stuff. And do you have some elaborate note taking system or just I have a Google, text file? Google Docs, lots of Google Docs. I'm just like writing, 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 writing. And then I go through my notes and I say, okay, I take bits and it's almost like blocks, right? First, you move the big blocks around and then you start moving the little blocks within the, the writing to eventually end up with something that feels coherent. And then you do a final write through to complete. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's the topic that you wish you knew more about? So if you're looking ahead to the next few videos you're going to make, you're planning on doing some deep dive, what comes to mind? I've been really interested in nuclear weapons recently. So like, um, uh, I don't know if it's because of Oppenheimer or anything, but I, I watched that movie and I was like, it was really, I was really moved by it. And I thought a lot about like, after the first detonation, right? The Soviet Union and all these, uh, set off basically an arms race, literal arms race by all the other countries to try to achieve nuclear weapons. While at the same time, the United States was trying hard to prevent knowledge from it, from spreading out. So I'm really fascinated. And I, I want to learn more about this because it's very difficult to actually find information on it is how did all these other countries get these bombs? And I think that's yeah, something that's kind of really fascinating. The kind I, of catch up. Yeah. I did a video one about China and how China got this nu nuclear weapon. I'm very fortunate because I found a book at the Stanford repo that I bought. But like, it's, it's, it's very, it's a lot of, some of these other countries are going to be much more challenging. Maybe sticking on this question. So I guess for context, a lot of our listeners are like early career researchers and really yeah. hunting for things that they could spend, say, three to six months on. Uh, outside of like nuclear weapons, is there anything else you'd want to flag as like, hey, I think this would be really cool and is currently underexplored. And if you've got six months, like do a deep dive on it. I'm, I'm really fascinated right now on other parts of the semiconductor supply chain other than, um, other than lithography, right? So etch deposition, ion implantation. A lot of these are are kind of legacy tools that need a lot more investment. And one of the things I'm really fascinated and uh, we'll have a video up out, out soon is atomic layer deposition. That's one of the most exciting kind of tools in semiconductor industry right now outside of lithography. And I think if it and its analog atomic layer etch is, are going to be really big for for semiconductor in the future. And there's going to be a lot of investment in it. So I think that's, that's if I was, you know, if I was kind of doing that research, then the, if I'm going to do, read, do that reading, that'd be really good reading to learn. If it's possible to give a quick answer, can you say what edge is? So when you, when you, so when, um, after the lithography happens, it, all the lithography does is transfer the chip pattern from the plate to the wafer. After that, you still need to cut that wafer, cut that, cut that design into the wafer. So that's what Etch does. Etch basically imprints that into the silicon or the or the metal is metal layers, but I'm, I'm going ahead myself. All right, let's do some final questions. And um, yeah, one question we ask everyone is whether you can recommend three resources. So, you know, papers, textbooks, books, um, for someone listening to this who just wants to find out more about anything you've talked about? That is a very good question. There is a great textbook by Bo Lojek called The History of Semiconductor Engineering. And I think anyone who likes what I talk about should pick that up. There is another, um, there's another one called Tiger Technology 
the creation of a semiconductor industry in East Asia. So that I think is a great book. I think it's actually publicly available. You can just download it. Um, and then there is another one uh, that I read all the time, the Handbook of East Asian Entrepreneurship. And that one is great because it tells you how all of these other companies outside of your stand, everyone's tired of hearing about Google, all those other ones. I think it's very fascinating to hear about these Chinese or East Asian companies in Taiwan, South Korea, uh, uh, Hong Kong, but also the Mal Malaysia and also Southeast Asia. It's very fascinating. Yeah, these are great textbook recommendations to help people get, you know, a foundation knowledge. Um, I'm curious if there's anything uh, like online as well in terms of uh, blogs or, or Substacks or what have you that you'd recommend for people uh, to stay up to date with semiconductor news. I think uh, Doug's fabricated knowledge is really good. Um, I also read a lot of um, SemiWiki. SemiWiki is pretty okay. There's SemiEngineering.com. Um, I don't really, I mean, a lot of this stuff doesn't move that fast, so you don't really have to like, it's not like breaking news. It's not like exactly, you know, LK99 stuff. So like you just, it, it, it'll pop up. <laughs> if it's important, it'll pop up to you eventually. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. Um, and then just lastly, we will, of course, link to um, your newsletter and your YouTube channel. But just, I guess, verbally, where can people find you and your work online? Uh, just find me on Asianometry, um, youtube.com, search Asianometry. I'm the deer. And um, yeah, you can just, just watch a couple of videos and I hope you enjoy it. Hope you can shoot me an email at hello at Asianometry.com and say hello. I, I'm, I try to be accessible. Well, what's the, the story behind the day, by the way? The deer there. So one day, long time ago, I was creating a YouTube channel for my mom to show my mom what I was doing in Taiwan. And my mom was complaining to me during our last trip to Japan. She was saying that I didn't tell her anything. So I, um, <laughs> so I created this YouTube channel. I was going to do all these videos of hiking and stuff I was doing in Taiwan. And I pick Asianometry because I like trigonometry and I am Asian. And, um, <laughs> and the picture, they said, do you need a profile picture? I said, yes. So I looked into my phone and the last picture I took, because I just came back from vacation, was from our trip to Nara that my sister just sent me of a deer with myself in the background. So if you actually look at that YouTube uh, profile picture, I'm in the back. That's me. <laughs> that's a that's little, so cool. That's I had no idea. Yeah. That's a really fun little Easter egg. Yes. Um, well, yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much for, uh, for this interview. And thanks so much, John, for, for coming onto the show. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. That was John Y from Asianometry on Compute Trends in Artificial Intelligence. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Asianometry. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed this podcast and find it valuable, then one of the best ways to help us out is to write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. You can also give us a shout out on Twitter, we're at hearthisidea. We do have a short feedback survey, which should only take you somewhere between five to 10 minutes to fill out. We read every submission, and as a thank you, you'll also get a free book from us. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and thanks very much to you for listening.